everyone. This is William Coldwell, your host. Thank you for listening to the 21st Rewrite. This is an in-depth screenwriting podcast. Whether you are a writer, filmmaker, or just interested in stories, I hope you enjoy the show. This episode is my personal favorite so far. We give you a very detailed analysis of Martin Scorsese's 2016 film, Silence. As usual, we will be discussing the full scope of the story, so you may prefer to see the film before listening. The script, which took Scorsese and his writing partner over two decades to complete, is compared with the original novel by Shusaku Endo, which you do not need to have read, although it is a fantastic work of literature and I cannot recommend it enough, so perhaps listening to our show might even convince you to give it a read yourself. We have a long conversation ahead, so get settled in as we present you our assessment of the screenplay to Silence. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast where we talk about a screenplay written in the 21st century. I'm William Coldwell and I'm joined as always by my good friend Alan Vasquez. Hi, happy to be here. Today we are going to talk about Martin Scorsese's uh, very unappreciated silence, unappreciated for now, a film based on a book by Shusaku Endo and pretty much talks about the Christian faith in 17th century Japan. Yeah, so it's a historical screenplay, but right. I think as as we talk today, we're going to see it deals with some very universal themes as well. Mm-hmm. And this was a a real labor of love project for Scorsese. It really was. Uh, I think this is a, a movie that's been in development, had been in development for about 20 years. And this is something that is very personal to Scorsese because he wanted to be a priest when he was younger. I mean, he was either going to be a priest or a filmmaker. Obviously, he went on to become a filmmaker. But the theme of religion is something that's present in some of his other films, like uh, Last Temptation of Christ being a good example of that. Yeah, Mean Streets as well. Mean Streets, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of... This is something that I think he's incredibly fascinated by, you know, just the whole concept of God and, and faith and, and devotion. And, and I think this book has everything of that. This is something that he's been wanting to do for, for a very long time. And I think you can tell when you watch the movie the amount of passion he has for it. Every single shot is a painting. It's just a very well thought out, very intentional film. Scorsese... I've heard in interviews he said that he grew up in a rough neighborhood. Right. And his role model growing up was a priest. Right. And he saw that as an alternative to the violence around him uh, mm-hmm. and the corruption and everything that was, was going on in that community. Right. And so he was, as a young man, drawn to that idea. And then yeah. he, he obviously had his, his own decisions uh during his his adolescence and early adult life and chose to go into a different career path but i think that's that sense of seeking a purpose and sense of uh devotion to something that was going to come through in whatever he applied himself to and it happened to be filmmaking in the end scorsese is one of the most respected directors in in the world and I can imagine when uh, this project got underway and they were looking for Japanese actors, even people 
halfway around the world were jumping at the chance to be in the next Scorsese movie. Absolutely. And you can tell he got the best actors in Japan because every single one of them did such a great job bringing yeah. these Japanese characters to life. One of the things I thought watching it was sometimes I think of languages like uh, Portuguese is a great language for right. music. Music in Portuguese always sounds great. Mm. And films in Japanese always sound great. It's such a dramatic language. Mm, yeah. The, there's something about the tone and the shouting that just comes across. You don't know what words are being said, but you can just feel it. And you yeah. know, if you ever watch a film by yeah. Kurosawa or something mm -hmm. like that, that Japanese language in itself uh, has a real force behind it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And you can tell in this film, like because the whole film is set in Japan. Mm -hmm. So we have that whole colorful environment to go with it. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think... For Scorsese, I think this film kind of represented like a pinnacle for, for his career because he's a very diverse filmmaker. He's, he doesn't really stick to one genre. I mean, he you know, likes gangster films, but he's done so much more than that. Yeah, and he's become a bit of a documentarian as well. It's true. As yeah. just a fiction filmmaker. Right. And I think this film is so different from everything that he's done. It's very still. It, mm -hmm. like The whole film almost feels like a meditation. It's very contemplative. It's very sort of, it's not flat. That the rhythm is not his usual like Wolf of Wall Street or Goodfellas, where it's just a very like rambunctious sort of you know chaotic thing. This is very meditative, and I think this is the first time I see a film by him that feels like this, which is really exciting. It's really cool. Yeah, and good artists adapt, and they also mm -hmm. try new things, and they don't right. stay static throughout their whole careers. And this was such a good experiment. Mm. It really paid off in the end. I love the film. The first time I saw it, I didn't think I understood it. Mm. The, the second time I saw it, having read the script carefully, having read the book that inspired it, mm. I really appreciated it a lot more. Mm. And so I guess this is a film that maybe will take a while for audiences to really start to appreciate i think so it didn't have a big yeah. release it didn't right. have huge attendance at the box office or anything right. like that but i do th i do think it will be regarded as one of the greats of the 2010s at least i believe that 100 percent. i do think i remember i saw it at a preview screenings a, a week or two before the film came out and i saw it with my brother and by the time it ended i just i knew i saw something great like mm -hmm. me and my brother, we drove home and we were just nonstop talking about the film. It made us think about things that we normally don't really discuss or, or think about or talk about. And it was just all because of this film. And I, I think a lot of films, unfortunately, do have to go through this process where they're not appreciated at first and have that journey of aging. I think Eternal Sunshine is also a film when it came out, didn't make any money and people didn't really dig it or whatever. And now it's regarded as one of the best of the last century. So I think the same thing will happen to this one. And if it doesn't, it should do. It, it, it will. <laughs> <laughs> I just think I think the, the thing that's blocking that is the perception that it's a very religious film, you know, from people who unfortunately you have two perspectives that might see it wrong you have the the people that aren't religious who might think of it as a religious film and the religious people who might find it to be anti-religion yeah or blasphemous as they might say right yeah. correct so unfortunately they weren't able to please anybody mm -hmm. <laughs> all these different 
uh, demographics had sort of the wrong impression as to what the film is. It doesn't really have an agenda, and it's not trying to make you convince you to think one way or the other. I think it's just presenting a story mm-hmm. that's a very beautiful story, and I think that that's it yes it's there to make you think and it's interesting you the first time you saw it you saw it with your brother the Mm -hmm. first time i saw it i saw it with you and Mm -hmm. uh some other friends of ours right and it scorsese essentially said this is a film that you are meant to see in a group because it gets you talking Mm -hmm. it gets you thinking about things and that's what i meant when i said the first time i don't think i got it Mm. it doesn't mean i didn't appreciate it i just sense there was something else that i wasn't quite getting that Mm. that underneath there there was so much more it was it was profound but i couldn't i couldn't understand exactly what i just witnessed Mm. and i think that process of talking it through afterwards Mm -hmm. and then exploring the film is part of the film in a way yeah it's an extension of that story Mm -hmm. and it extends to what do we believe in how far are we willing to go Mm-hmm. for our own personal beliefs it doesn't have to be religious yeah and this is through the lens of a different time period it's right. through the lens of the 1600s mm-hmm. and people were more sure about things back then than mm. we are now it was easier when you were just taught one thing as a truth right. and today the only thing that is purely true is science and it doesn't teach you anything about how to live mm. It can tell you how things work, but it won't tell you how to make a decision in your life. And that Mm. ground is still the domain of religion and ethics to some extent, because science can't have any real input in in that area. It's still an area just for humanity. Yeah. I mean, it can give you facts about stuff. In the end, you decide what what you think is the right thing to do or the wrong (laughs) thing to do. And that does fall into the the world of religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so religion itself is essentially a framework. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a way for you to live your life. Mm-hmm. It's a way for you to be taught. This is what maybe you have a figurehead who you look up to mm-hmm. and that this comes into play in, in, uh, in silence as well, that Christians look up to Christ and the Virgin and the pantheon of saints and ultimately God. And the Buddhists look kind of inwards they look at man mm. within himself and the potential to become mm. buddha to reach nirvana it's all within a person and these two ideologies are kind of coming into conflict in 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 this story mm-hmm. but religion in general it's it's like a, a way to live mm. and what happens when those teachings which might be useful in certain circumstances are put to the ultimate test Mm -hmm. so the main character in silence is sebastiao rodriguez Mm -hmm. who is a priest who has traveled from portugal right to japan by way of macau right uh which is a portuguese outpost in in china yeah uh, in search of father ferreira Mm -hmm. who is a a predecessor of his who he knew back in Portugal right. played by who, Liam Neeson played by ne- Liam Neeson yeah who went to Japan before him yeah and is said to have given up has renounced his faith right and is living as a Japanese citizen now right 
And that in itself is a very intriguing thing because this is based on historical fact. Christians were being persecuted in Japan at the time. And so, yeah, we have uh, Rodriguez who goes with Adam Driver's character, Francisco Garupe. And so they go on this journey. Just that by itself is a great sort of adventure. And both the book and the book a little bit does kind of go into more of their journey to Japan more than the film. In the film, they get to Japan fairly quickly. So the film is not about that voyage. It's, it, like you said, it's about these two ideologies into conflict with one another. And that's really what the film explores. And I feel like it's very meditative. It's almost like it kind of reminds me of a poem in some ways, some visual poem on, mm -hmm. on ideologies clashing. The suffering that is caused by the resistance by those who are so attached to these ideologies. That to me was the most interesting aspect of the film. The suffering that was being caused by something that is supposed to give you spiritual freedom. Yes, I, th I think one of the questions it raises is to what extent su suffering needs to happen mm. in the name of faith mm. on both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, to some extent the religious people are causing suffering to themselves yeah. by having such a fixed doctrine that yeah. cannot adapt. And also there is the suffering of the intolerance done to other people right? and the torture <clears throat> and the, uh, the extreme methods that the Japanese are using to get people to renounce Christianity. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of, um, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting if you don't believe what I believe, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just such a primitive, limiting way of thinking, you know? And, like, we we get so caught up in, in our own ideologies that we don't really step back and, and really see that in reality. That's exactly what's going on. The Japanese are saying, you believe this, which is not what we believe, so you're going to die for it. And the other ones are, you're not going to make us change. Even if you're killing us, even if we're suffering, we're still going to hold on to it. But at the same time, on the flip side, there's a lot of admiration. At least I had a lot of respect for the will of the, the, the faithful and the ones that are devoted. There's so much passion there and so much devotion that you can't help but kind of admire Andrew Garfield's character. It's just, and he did such a great job too at portraying this, this character, I gotta say. And pretty much what I read in the book comes across in his performance and the subtleties and everything. But he makes you believe that what he's doing, he's doing it for the right thing. Even though part of you is like, you're crazy. Like you're making these people suffer. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're in awe of his strength, which is countered by the Judas of the story, which is, um, Kichijiro. who's the Judas of the, um, or as I also like to call him the golem of the film. You know, he's sort of, that's, that's an interesting, little... uh, comparison actually. <laughs> Kichijiro does have some golem like qualities. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll get to the concept of Judas in a little bit. Okay. Um, just sticking with priests in general. So these are, mm. these are not the kind of priests that we know today. Right. These are hardy explorers. They're risking their lives. Yes. It's in the name of God and spreading the word of God, but it's very different to what we might expect today of a priest's duties. They're putting themselves directly in the line of death. Right, 
Right. And like you said, they're adventurous, you know, and this is, uh, you know, the world wasn't entirely discovered yet. There was a lot of, they really saw themselves as being in the front lines for their faith and something that I greatly admire and simultaneously think it's really dumb. It's a very interesting Mm -hmm. thing. And that's the one thing that stuck with me the minute I left the theater was that feeling of, oh man, like I respect this guy so much, but I also think he's really dumb. That's the paradox. Yeah, it's a very strong paradox. and, And I love it because it's just... It's not making you, and this is what I think people need to understand, it's not an anti-religious film, and it's not a religious film either. It's just simply mm-hmm. a story that kind of pushes you to explore those subjects, mm-hmm. hopefully from a neutral perspective. Well, most screenplays are about conflict and about danger, uh, characters putting themselves into a new situation. If, if everything was calm and safe, then there wouldn't mm-hmm. be much of a story there. Right. This is almost like a conscious decision to do that to go and become a missionary is to attempt to be a protagonist in a story Mm. it's that decision i'm going to be like christ i'm going to be i'm going to live in his image Mm. and essentially what starts to happen to rodriguez is he he takes that role too seriously right he is he does have a lot of pride you could even call it arrogance. Mm-hmm. And there is, there's some mention of other priests as well who have been like this. I think they mention one called uh, Father Cabral at one point and say, oh, he never learned our customs. He, he never learned any of our language. Right, right. And there's that sense of this inherent arrogance in some parts of Christianity. And at the same time, the Japanese are inherently arrogant. This is a period of Japanese history where they literally sealed their borders off yeah and didn't allow anyone in that they didn't want right and japan this this whole edo period of japanese history is this enclosure of japan away from at the same time as spain and portugal are navigating around the entire world england and the dutch shortly following Mm. and then you know other european powers like the french soon get involved right at this time, Japan is shutting itself off entirely from the world in this desperate bid to preserve things as they were. Right. And that's where this harshness in the... When we think of Buddhists today, we do think of very free-spirited, open-minded mm-hmm. kind of... Bunch of hippies. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's not the Buddhism in Japan at this time. It's, it's a tool for the government to control people, mm-hmm. uh, to have this strong hierarchy and this total adherence to their way of life mm-hmm. and Christianity is a threat to that because it's teaching that there is another authority and Christianity has always had this uh, Christ's uh, saying about render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God that mm. which is God this happened in the Roman Empire as well when Christianity was founded mm-hmm. there is something above the emperor in, right. in Christianity and Japan obviously saw this as a threat. Right. That's a very interesting point. I didn't really quite get to that extent while thinking about it, but you're right. That was a threat. And one of the great things about the the book and, and the film too, but especially the book, I feel like when he meets Inoue, who is the, the man in charge of... The Inquisitor. The Inquisitor, yeah. who's in charge of uh, rounding up all the Christians, is he wasn't expecting this man he was expecting no. him to 
be encountered with the devil himself, Mm -hmm. especially because of the rumors of the stuff that he did. But he encounters this sort of happy Japanese guy. And and I think that's what's even more frustrating for him because he's not presented with the devil exactly. He's presented with even more doubt because you're now he was now he's being presented with an alternate perception that it's uncomfortable for him because if he even dabbles in that perception that he's losing his faith causes him to doubt. Mm-hmm. I love films where the the real showdown, the real villain isn't seen until later on in the film mm. and they're kind of built up from the beginning you start to hear their name being dropped and mm-hmm. and yeah. you get a sense that they're out there and then that that collision's going to happen and this film actually has two of those moments because it has in a way, mm-hmm. and it has Ferreira. Right. Both of them are characters who the priests are aware of for a while, and it, and then eventually when they are face-to-face and meet them, or in Inoue's case, find out who he really is, it's right. so brilliant. It, it adds the, so much to the drama and yeah. that sense of the long journey because they never turn out to be who they're expecting them to be. Exactly. I mean, they're both the MacGuffins of the film at different times. You know, there's even that moment where, you know, Rodriguez is on the beach and that's when Francisco Garupe shows up and he's like in chains. But he was expecting Ferreira at that point. Mm -hmm. And we were too as the audience. I remember when I first watched it, I was like expecting for Liam Neeson to show up right there and then. Um, But then it doesn't doesn't happen that way but you're still conscious of what the mission is that's how brilliant it is because there's a threat and you know it's going to go somewhere and then the whole time you're thinking they're kind of planting a seed that Ferreira didn't actually apostatize he didn't actually denounce God he didn't Mm -hmm. betray the faith this ties into the mythology of martyrdom and sainthood Mm. it it's it's expected that someone should die for the faith in Christianity. Right. Well, in this form of Christianity, at least. Right. And that is where it becomes such a huge thing for Rodriguez, especially. He starts to wish for death. He starts to wish to go out as a hero as a result. And the story of Ferreira conflicts with that, that motive of Christianity. What happens when the priest renounces the faith. It, does, it doesn't add up to them. So for the beginning of the film, right into the middle, Rodriguez won't believe that Ferreira has abandoned yeah, the faith. Yeah, yeah. And, and then when he finally sees that he does, the heartbreak in his eyes is just mm-hmm. so sad. But, you know, it's uh, especially because it's someone that he saw as a mentor and personally mm-hmm. knew and respected. So if, if the good went down like that, it's almost like a hopeless... A hopeless case for him yeah so yeah there's a there's a lot of uh good again like the film is very straightforward but it's very contemplative i don't even know how to articulate the flow of the film but it's it's a, it has a very sort of special pace where it doesn't go too fast but it doesn't go incredibly slow i think it reduces things to the key elements mm-hmm. and I mean that in the sense of not being simplistic. It's not simplistic. No. But it uses the same kind of process of simplifying things down to their bare essence. And this is, the screenplay in particular is a distilling of the book Mm -hmm. into all of the key elements. 
Right. And often finding those little phrases that come up in the prose. Um, so for people who haven't read the book, it's structured in a very interesting way. So it starts out with a kind of narrative and then it jumps to a first-person account from Rodriguez's point of view, kind of like their letters being written yeah, back. Yeah, so it's all the letters, and which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And that goes around for like five chapters. And then it jumps yeah. back to a narrative. Right. And then towards the end, it reverts to the diary of another person. And they did incorporate that into the, yeah. into the film yeah, as well. Yeah. What they do do is they as screenwriters they cut out the the first chapter really which is the travels of the two priests from portugal to yeah. macau and then to japan right. and i can see why they did that it's already a two and a half hour long movie mm -hmm. it's already you know long enough and that bit doesn't necessarily add too much to the story but no. i do feel that there is something that's missing mm. right at the beginning you you aren't aware of just how hard they've worked to get there and i would love to just read one little bit from the book from that sure, beginning yeah. uh chapter july 25th the feast of saint james the ship at last rounded the cape of good hope on this day a violent wind again arose so that the mast of the ship was broken and crashed down on the deck with a rending sound even the sick and rodriguez and his companions were summoned up to rescue the foresail from the same peril but scarcely had they succeeded in their attempt when the ship ran on a rock. If the other ships had not been there to help, the Santa Isabella would probably have sunk there and then. After the storm, the wind again calmed down. The sail lay lifeless. Only its pitch-black shadow fell upon the faces and bodies of the sick, who lay like dead men on the deck. And so the days passed one by one, with the glaring heat of the sun bearing down upon a sea, which had not so much as a swell of the waves. Mm. That journey that's missing from the beginning of the screenplay and i do wish they'd kind of just uh acknowledge that and i think for anyone who hasn't read the book just that tiny bit of prose will give you a sense of how deep and humane the author can be with his prose mm. there he uses very and like i said the the script itself is distilled down to simple elements but mm -hmm. the book itself is composed of simple elements and i don't sure. know if that's a result of the Japanese style of writing hmm. or this author's style of writing or kind of mix of both and maybe some input from the translator. But right. there is definitely a sense that he reduces things to simple, uh, simple terms like using just the word black for a color as opposed to trying to use lots and lots of metaphors and flowery language. Yeah, he really yeah. distills it just down to the idea people looking yeah. like they're dead and suffering on this huge journey from Portugal they don't even get to Japan on this. This is just to get to China. Right. Yeah. And then crossing the sea into Japan, that's when the real danger is going to start. Yeah, yeah, no. It's very simple, but there's just so much story that it doesn't need to go into a lot of detail as to what's happening. And, and the great thing about, the brilliant thing about the book, which also translates in the movie to an extent, is that you have five chapters where you're hearing an internal monologue you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're inside Rodriguez's head. He's writing yeah. these letters, so you're seeing everything from his perspective. So when you jump into the more... Yeah, the uh, third-person narrative. The yeah. third-person narrative, you have... You know who this guy is already. And it, it constantly refers to him as the priest. Like, it, it's, a, it's a detached, but by now we know who this guy He's is. He's the main character at this point. Right. Yeah. 
So I thought that was a very interesting, I remember reading the book and then when I jumped to six, I didn't realize for like a few sentences that there was a shift in the structure. Mm. And then I was like, wait a second. <laughs> and it took me like a second to do that, but it was good. It was, a, I like that sort of transition yeah. into that form of storytelling. It's very creative. It's something that really only arose in with modernism. So mm-hmm. at the start of the last century really did books start to move around and have different narrators and mm. different styles. But this one is very creative in it, and it, it does it specifically to give you the sense that you're reading a historical document. Yeah, yeah. So you feel like great. you're reading Rodriguez's letters, you're reading accounts of the voyages, you're reading the Dutchman's diary. It, mm-hmm. it all adds up to give you this sense that you're reading something that's real. Yeah. And by creating that impression, you get drawn in and believe the story on the grounds in which the story is built. Absolutely. Um, It's very, very powerful, that usage. And what the screenwriters do is they use voiceovers Mm -hmm. to convey the letters being sent back. So we're hearing Rodriguez's opinion of something as the scene is progressing. There are a couple of voiceovers from Ferreira and flashbacks are used as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, That that conveys his voice, his letters back to um, Father Valignano, who is back in Macau. Right. And then the Dutchman at the end. Again, it's another perspective. So you the film manages to get all of these different characters' perspectives mm-hmm. into the story using those techniques and they are very effective. Especially I th- I think the most hard one must have been the voice of Christ. Uh how yeah. to get that with without it coming across as crude or cheesy, uh, I don't know. It does work. Yeah, yeah, and and it. I get the sense it's like an inner voice. It's within Rodriguez in some way. Right. It's not meant to be Christ's real voice. It's no. it's who Rodriguez imagines Christ is. Because he he, he sees himself as Christ, mm-hmm. and we see that in you know throughout the film. You know, you have that moment where he's looking down at the at the river, and he sees his reflection morph mm-hmm. into Christ. So that's a recurring theme there that Christ is within him. Like yeah. that's sort of the, the the face that he constantly sees. So, of course, he's going to hear it in his own voice, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's a, a powerful motif from the book, The yeah. Face of Christ. Right. It's referred to as the painting he saw in the seminary back in Evora in Portugal. Mm. Uh, so that's the Christ mm. he believes in. It's the one he's seen since he was young. And that that visual image of that specific painting. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a motif in the book. It, yeah. It's toned down a little bit in the screenplay, mm-hmm. but it it then kind of comes back to life in the film yes. as a visual element. Yeah, like you said, the the reflection in the river. Yeah, I think there's one tiny bit of the screenplay that used the uh, face of Christ, and it was taken out in the film. Maybe seemed a little bit unnecessary in that particular scene, but aside from that, it's just a it's just something that reoccurs every now and again and it it shows rodriguez's mindset his connection he refers to christ as having the face a a beautiful face the kind of face that a lover might imagine in their head thinking of their their beloved yeah you know somewhere far away i thought that that analogy or that comparison was really great Mm mm-hmm uh, when it, when and that's what priests yeah. do. You know, they yeah. dedicate their lives to one thing exactly. in the same way that that lay people might dedicate their lives to one other person in a monogamous relationship. Exactly, so. exactly. 
And, and like you said, like it, it's a very uh, strong theme in the book, but in the film, it's a completely different medium. <laughs> so you're telling the same story, but you have different tools to tell the story. In the film world, you have visuals mm -hmm. and that sticks with you i think there was a scene also early on in the script that i saw that was not in the film and it was more to do with you know finding ferrera and i guess at this point it's already established that that's what they're there to do there's no need to repeat it there's no need to go back so i can see like the filmmakers on the day or when they're editing like okay we can take that part out because yeah there's a lot of visual cues in film and, and and they're kind of seated in the audience's head. So you don't need to repeat it because it's a fine line. You know, if you want it to be obvious enough for the audience to not get lost, but you don't want to beat them over the head with it. So it's a very fine. Medium. But when you're in a book, it's a completely different beast because it's a much more thorough and a much more detailed Mm -hmm. um, exploration because you're using words to engage the imagination of yeah, the audience. You have to make people create those images exactly. in their mind. So right. you have to keep going back to them and and adding to that image. A absolutely, yeah. Uh, Endo does some brilliant things in the book in terms of causing your imagination to visualize things. And one of my favorites, it's a sad scene, but it's one of my favorite uh, usages of this kind of beautiful imagery is when one of the imprisoned Japanese Christians gets his head cut off by the samurai sword. Mm. And I think Endo describes it as if when they're dragging the body away, as if it's this pen leaving black ink along the sand. Yeah. And Scorsese chose to add a, a shot like that from above. Yeah. And it, yeah, yeah. it looks great on screen. And it's exactly what I imagined yeah. when I read that in the book. Yeah, I imagined exactly that kind of thing. So they captured it. It's like a brush stroke. Yeah, exactly. And you think of those old Japanese paintings and the, mm. the calligraphy they have over there, mm -hmm. and you know exactly what he's referring to. But right. it's such a sinister thing. It's, you know, someone's just had their head chopped off. But it, it just works. It, it's such a great image. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's the movie is so respectful and faithful to the book it's it's amazing because it doesn't usually happen that way you know not in hollywood especially no films yeah. usually really change a lot of stuff and a lot of the times they make sense uh but this one was like almost identical in in the way everything kind of happens yeah simplified but pretty much the same thing yeah i think that's something we might need to explain a bit more so this this script was yeah. Scorsese and Jay Cox's project for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think Scorsese even almost got sued or did get sued over not making this film because he committed to making it. Yeah, he had much to pay a fine. On. Like yeah. he literally had to pay money yeah. for it or something. So yeah. this had been, and he always thought, it's not ready. We don't have the script right yet. Right. And so the book isn't very long. It's 200 mm -hmm. something pages in the English translation. Yeah. It's quite short, it's quite straightforward. It took them years to distill it down to the basic elements of what made that story work. And it's not, it's not the narrative journey of these characters and the actions they take. It's what goes on in their hearts and mm. in their minds during the story that is the story. So in order to get that into the screenplay is no easy task. Mm. No, yeah. And one of the brilliant things they also did that I think was also in the book as well, but in the film, 
what they really accomplished was to make the Japanese almost empathetic. Mm-hmm. You know, like you mentioned the scene where the guy gets his head cut off and other scenes where people are being tortured. I just think in the hands of another filmmaker or you you would they would all have like evil faces and mm-hmm. but they don't. Like I I noticed this time when I watched it, I wasn't hating the Japanese. The film doesn't draw you to to really hate or feel this sort of like um, anger towards the Japanese who are doing this. You, mm-hmm. You're just, uh, you, you're contemplating it. I don't know how he did it, but he just I, made it so that yeah, it's a, I it's think a conversation. It's, I think it's because it's meant to be a universal story. Yeah. And so when things are, let's say, I don't know what the opposite of universal is, but let's say a direct story about one particular group of people, then you can paint them as heroes or villains. But Mm -hmm. when you make it a universal story, they represent something. And in this case, the Japanese represent those cultures that are not Christian. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty of spreading Christianity within those realms in some way. So the Japanese are a kind of extreme example. I mean, my studies have you know, taken me to learn a lot more about uh, Latin America and colonization there, where, I mean, we can see the evidence today that Christianity took a strong hold in in that part of the world. Absolutely. Eventually. Yeah. yeah. Um, but a lot of hybridization of religion happened at the same time, and a, mm. lo- a lot of things that I'm familiar with from studying colonial history of Latin America come up in Japan as well. Mm. The idea of hybridized religion Hmm. not being able to translate things into terms that the indigenous people understand. And so they create their Hmm. own understanding of things, often huge misunderstandings of things. And that's a little theme that's kind of roaming around in in this script as well, is to what extent the Japanese even are Christian, or Hmm. are they creating something new as a result? Their heritage, their tradition doesn't come from the same place so they're interpreting christianity in their own terms and also the fact that the priests aren't available to them to teach it the way that they want to is is making that problem of hybridization grow even more because people are trying to live as christians without any teaching that's a very interesting i hadn't thought about that before but you're right there's so many different variations of the Christian religion and there's so many different branches of just one religion and they're all different hybrids of each other and it just yeah were you saying that I can see where like the beginnings of those could happen one of the funniest parts of the, of the film was when um, Rodriguez gets captured and he's mm-hmm. there with that family and, and you know they see the priest for the first time and they're you know they give him some food and and they, they, they want to know about Paraiso, Paradise. And, and I think her name is Monica, the, the lady that was nice enough to, to give him food, who says, that's where we get to go now if we die. So dying is good because we get to go to Paraiso. We don't have to pay taxes and there's no labor there. And in the book, you have Rodriguez. I think his internal commentary on that was like, how could I? He almost was frustrated that that was their their interpretation yep. of paradise. So there I, was some stuff lost in translation there because they didn't have anyone. I think it's it's also one of the criticisms of religion today is it's just this desperate desire for going to heaven. It's as if it's selfish. It is. That's one interpretation of it. That is one. Yeah. And yeah. this is when Rodriguez 
at that at, in that scene he really loses it and he starts shouting don't you understand we're all going to die right he starts shouting at right. them and that's this i think the second time he really loses it the first time is when he tells the the villagers ichiso and mokichi the ones who are eventually crucified and and left out in the sea to to drown he tells them to trample yeah he that's another that's time that he, he loses yeah. His ability, his ability to behave as a priest, right? Because he's seeing this yeah. as unnecessary suffering, foolish behavior. You might go to paradise, you might go to heaven, but you should still try and live. He 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 realizes that there's a, a contradiction there. Mm -hmm. It's not a contradiction that he is aware of for himself, though, and that's what makes this character so deep. He mm. wants to be martyred. Mm. He. He associates he associates himself with Christ, and he wants to be martyred, and that arrogance is how they take him down. Yeah, and, and even though I do feel like there it is an arrogance, you still don't you you empathize with him because mm -hmm. you you see that he doesn't see it that way. Yes, you know what I mean. So you see his perspective completely, even though to you know me and you it doesn't make sense, but to him it does, and. And that's mm -hmm. what I really loved about his character is that he was just passionate and he just went for it. Like, this is his mission and he was so dedicated. So you have this character, you know, Rodriguez, who is constantly being contrasted by Kichijiro, who is the opposite of that, who has no loyalty. And you have these two constant opposing forces meeting again and again mm -hmm. throughout the film, which was one of the most fascinating things to me about the film is you have these two characters who are so opposite of each other yet they spend so much time together they're bound together yes kind of like frodo and Gollum. they're bound together by the the, mm -hmm. the quest to get rid of the ring these two are bound together and kichijiro is painted as a judas and i'll try and explain why that's not exactly what i think is really what's going on but mm -hmm. you're gonna have to bear with me on this one sure so kichijiro betrays rodriguez mm -hmm. he betrays his own family he is almost it seems like he's stuck in this constant cycle of being judas and endo makes this this big comparison by the fact that kichijiro uh, betrays rodriguez and gets paid 300 pieces of silver and in the screenplay they add in that that line about judas only got 30 Mm. And, you know, th this all becomes apparent to them that it's this, this retelling of the, the Christian story, the gospel, with these new characters, with Kichijiro. But he's not really Judas. He's kind of representative of all the weak people in humanity. And Scorsese says that Rodriguez is Judas. And that mm. the process of the story is the priest Rodriguez finding out that even though he wanted to be like Christ, he actually was Judas. Mm. And that is explained by the fact that he eventually betrays Christ. Mm. So all throughout the story, he wants to die this glorious martyrdom. He wants to be like Christ on the cross. He yells out to God, why have you forsaken me? He wants to be like Jesus. But really he can't do it. And it's because he hasn't been his role his role in life is not to be that and actually garupe gets to do it and that is one of the things that 
most mm. causes this huge uh, breakdown in his mind, and he sits in the, his prison cell just staring after Gurupe dies because he didn't get to die. Mm. He didn't get that glorious martyrdom, and he, his life is going to be something else. It's going to be like Ferreras. And mm. eventually they do break him. They do get him to deny mm. God. Yeah. And they destroy his spirit somehow. Yeah. And I think the reason he al that is allowed to happen to him is because he is... And this is why the word arrogance, it sounds wrong to us because we think of arrogance as, uh, you know, thinking you're better than other people. But arrogance, I think, in the Christian sense is believing that you know better than God what should happen with your life. Mm. And that's where... They, the Japanese especially, in a way, knows how to play Rodriguez. Mm. He realizes he would rather be a martyr than mm. anything else. And so when he's offered that chance to save five people's lives, he takes it. Mm. Because for, and Ferreira's there, he's saying, what would Christ have done? Think of what Christ would do. And he really plays into that. And so mm. religious people... You ha they have this, this ethical guideline for how their life should be lived. And obviously the priests in particular, it's this feeling you need to live like Christ. You need to live in Christ's image. Mm. And this is where all of the nuance and all of the deepness of the film comes in, in mm. the story of the film at least. It's, it's very deep. Yeah, no, I, uh, that's a very interesting thing you pointed out about Ferreira telling kind of urging him to be like Christ and, and mm -hmm. using that as a weapon. I hadn't really seen it that way before, but that makes total sense. Yeah, you're right. You know, that's exactly who he wanted to be. And that was the only way to take him down. Uh, yeah, I guess you, you, I did see him as Christ because that is what he wanted to. And constantly the film is that is what he thinks there. he is. Yes. Um, and, and I noticed that in a lot of the shots you had Andrew Garfield always slightly above Kichijiro. Mm -hmm. And it was always it was always very apparent. You know, yeah. there was this like dynamic of Judas. It is definitely how he sees it. Right. So right. so these two things can coexist. It's yeah, exactly. how Rodriguez sees it. Yeah. And then the reality right. of the let's say the objective, even though we're introducing religious concepts, the objective reality is he does not accru uh, ever achieve that Christ like right. uh role. But he is throughout the story he's he's trying to and yeah i think that's where my idea of, of arrogance comes in it's mm. just that feeling of wanting to know better and demanding that we'll we'll get into this theme towards the end the theme of silence of mm -hmm. not being told anything by god mm -hmm. which is affecting every character and everyone who's suffering mm -hmm. and yet he still wants to be special and he wants god to talk to him specifically mm-hmm and there's that sense that no matter how deep your faith, you can't expect that. Mm. That's something that's reserved only for Christ. That mm. direct conversation. Even Christ didn't really have it, I suppose. Because Christ that's goes to Gethsemane and he prays and he's not answered either. Christ himself right. faces that silence. And then right. all of these other characters have to face that. It's what to do when you're not being told what to do mm. that destroys people. Mm. And I think, it, I don't know if it was in the book or in the film or both, where there's that line of, there was silence and that's where I found God. Mm -hmm. that, that's that, towards the end when he's right, realizing right. what really happened. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's when he gives up, not gives up, conforms and, 
and he starts to lead this other life. A couple more points on on Judas. Judas betrays Christ, and this is always one of the dilemmas of uh, the Christian story. Why would God create someone and put him on earth only to betray the Son of God and go to hell? It's the it's one of these central questions that that mm-hmm. is very hard for people to to understand. I think I'm sure there's been pages and pages and pages of theological works written on this topic, and mm-hmm. I don't think I'm in any position to, but I right. at least can have some thoughts on the the idea. And I think part of it is that Judas is he's kind of painted as a black and black or white figure. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that silence is, is kind of the opposite to the gospel and the, of, of, um, Matthew, I think is the gospel in particular where people are painted in purely good or evil terms. And silence is all about all of the nuance in life, all of the, the differences between people and the, their internal contradictions and their external contradictions and the situations they're put in that, you know, where can you make a, the right decision in this situation? You go back to Matthew's gospel where all people are good or evil. And the idea is it's people who listen to Christ and people who deny Christ. And Judas is representative of that. He, all the other characters call Jesus the Lord. Right. Judas calls him rabbi or teacher. Mm. And that was the thing that gave away to Christ that Judas was going to betray him, was his way of addressing him. Mm. So when Rodriguez imagines himself in the position of Christ, he sees Kichijiro as his Judas because yeah. uh, he, yeah. you know, he, saw, he betrayed me for, for silver. He sees it in terms of the actions. He betrayed me for silver. It's like the, kiss on the, the kisses on the cheek of Judas handing him into the guards. But it's actually Rodriguez is the one who is, uh, by the biblical definition, at the end he denies Christ. Mm. So therefore, he takes that wrong. He's one of those people who doesn't listen to Christ. And that's kind of a hard statement to make because he feels like he's being instructed on what to do by mm. Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's when he really is Judas, is because Christ said to Judas, ah, it's, it's some old-fashioned word, <laughs> right? But it's, it's essentially, like, do what you're going to do and do it quickly, essentially in modern English. Yeah. And, um, and uh, yeah. that is what Ferreira mm-hmm. tells uh, right. Rodriguez to do do it quickly just step on it it'll be over all the suffering will be over and towards the end Christ kind of reveals to him I was there I was I was there while you were suffering as mm. I was when Judas suffered essentially mm. Christ mm. is with all these people that suffer it's 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 obviously very metaphysical it's very Christian yeah. way of thinking of it but obviously yeah. we have to think in those terms with this screenplay because it's a Christian yes. work so yeah, no, you went very deep with that, but I. But there's not I many can, films. I can see that. Completely. There's not many Christian films who e- that ever achieve this level of thinking about. No, most who Christian is what, are, and and yeah. if the Bible is a guideline to living your life, then you're trying to figure out, you know, what to do by right. replaying these scenes in some way. Right, you're trying to replicate what would happen, and I think the the thing about religion is that everything's taken too literally and not enough is taking sort of metaphorically mm-hmm. and, and that's why people don't go deeper mm-hmm. into it. That's yeah. a, a, and my explanation is purely metaphorical. This is right. this is even assuming 
that Jesus is not even a historical figure, that he's that Judas and Jesus particularly are metaphorical figures to teach people a certain thing about what betrayal is, what suffering is, all these things, and why people are put on the earth to do bad things. That That's a great way of putting it, yeah. And, and that's kind of how I look at religion too and sort of the Bible. And it kind of raises the question, well, if 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 indeed Judas was placed to play that role, I think that makes him the hero because he had to... He had the hardest role in all of human history. He had the hardest role and he did it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it, and he killed himself yeah. as a result. Yeah. So it's it's a very interesting, very interesting actually. Now my mind is filled with all these other ideas. And that's what this film does. <laughs> and this is yeah. why it was so yeah, important yeah. for Scorsese to make it because that's, Scorsese yeah, understood this. Mm-hmm. He read the book countless times and he understood that something like this was at the heart of it. Yeah. And like I said, the first time I saw the film, I thought I didn't understand it. I knew there was something else out there. I read the book. And again, it's like you're getting closer. Like I, I get that there's something under there. And then reading the screenplay and then watching the film again and going back to the book and trying to figure out there's so mm. it's it's hidden so deeply in there. Mm-hmm. But Scorsese had already dug it up so it made it easier for us to we can watch the film and engage with with the themes of it because right. Scorsese had already figured out what this story was about and you know the title silence uh it it is that idea of faith of what do you do when you're not being told what to do there's no guidance there's no mm. words you can pray all you want you can scream at heaven you can you can swear, you can blaspheme, you can do whatever you want. But it's just going to be silent, the response. Yeah, which is ultimately like, it's just you. Mm-hmm. And everything is a reflection of you. It's, everything's a reflection of, you know, Rodriguez. Like he's just being encountered with his own actions, his own spirit. And and at the end, you have Kichichiro and Rodriguez on the same sort of playing field. You know, the mm-hmm. last scenes when they're a little bit older, you see now that they're both kind of on the same level, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the, and the way that it's shot, it's, it's the same thing for once we see them even yeah. with each other. And they've given yeah. up that idea of having to live their life in the image of something else, I think. Right. And right. they've settled into the idea of that their lives are their own, their own trials, their own sufferings, all of their own story will be just for them. And they and kept that, no, yeah. And they kept their religion. I mean, they didn't. It's revealed at the end that he never lost that. He never. Mm-hmm. He just conformed. But in his heart, that was yeah. still there. He even. It was even in the hearts of his wife, his new wife, and his, and his boy. Yeah, that might be one of the closing comments of the film. Is kind of the idea that it does matter more what's within than the uh, way you act. Of course. Um, and right. then that all kind of comes out in terms of. If you, if you forget about all of the, the structures and the, the Pope and the, the mm. saints and, and wearing the clothes of a priest and having the Christian artifacts, at the end of the day, it just will come down to what's inside you. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese as well, they can be good people, they can be evil people. It doesn't matter what religion they're following, whether they're Buddhist mm. or Shinto or, or Christian or whatever mm-hmm. they ended up being mm-hmm. and obviously there's a wide variety of characters but 
Yeah. It's kind of what's within is is more important. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, religion is sometimes in, in my opinion can be a, a poor substitute for a true spiritual experience because in a way you're kind of like you say it's mental structures. You're mm-hmm. you're kind of being sort of shepherd, if you will, into certain things. You have to do this mm-hmm. in order to get to heaven or you have to do this in order to not go to hell. So there's these all these rules that I think initially maybe when the Bible was written were just signposts. Mm-hmm. They were just trying to point, like you say, within. And instead, they were kind of taking a little literal. One of the things that, one of these um, sort of analogies that I like telling people whenever I talk about religion, sometimes I feel, because I, you know, I'm surrounded by a lot of religious people, and what I see is that a lot of importance is given to the traditions mm-hmm. rather than your thoughts and, and, you know, how you're treating yourself and how you're treating the people around you. And I feel like Jesus has, like, religion is pretty much Jesus has a sign with an arrow pointing mm-hmm. to his left or to his right. But he has, he has an arrow pointing. And people, instead of looking at where he's pointing, they're too busy sort of kissing his feet. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I see religion. Yeah, You know, I don't think Jesus, if you really think about it, I don't think he meant to be worshipped like he is. He was supposed to be a humble man. And now there's like, uh, he's like an idol. I don't think that's what he wanted. I think what he wanted was for people to love each other and to be kind to each other. And instead of pouring all this energy into worship him, mm-hmm. I think he would rather us just channel that energy into being kind to ourselves and to other people. Yeah, so the doctrine is part of the problem. It's right. also part of why this screenplay will be misunderstood. Right. But it's also a part of... But by the, the I suppose one of the contradictions is if you start thinking more freely you tend to break away from religion entirely Mm -hmm. and then you become less receptive to having these kind of conversations the kind of conversations that silence wants to have Mm. and so it it that's part of the problem is that Mm. because of all the doctrine and the idea you have to follow all these rules and the hierarchy of the church and and all this stuff and don't even get me started on the the knickknacks and the tourist things they sell, <laughs> especially in Catholic churches oh, or Orthodox yeah. churches. Or when they sell holy water from like the Jordan River. The commercialization of religion. Yeah. What it really boils down to is where your heart's, at least in silence, is where mm. your heart's going to go when you're faced with conditions that are completely intolerable mm-hmm. and that all people will face those conditions at some point in their life, even if it's just mental. Mm. It's about having that fortitude to... and to take from the teachings what you need to take to get through it. And that's what Ferreira eventually comes up with. And he's a very misunderstood character. Mm. He's misunderstood by everyone around him. The Japanese think they've won him over. They think he's their tool. And then, you know, all the priests, they think that he's... And there's a brilliant scene where, where they first meet and Rodriguez is shouting at him saying that, that he's a coward and that he's, right. he gave up the, the true way of the church. And Ferreira's kind of, he's taking it, you know, how, how some people can just take the punch. Right. And he's sitting there and he's, in his head, he's thinking, you're going to see in a few, in a few days yeah. what, I'm, what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, you know, when I first saw the film, I didn't very much like his character at all. I saw him as weak, even though you sympathize with him. Of course, he was not going to let other people suffer or whatever, but it's a very restrained performance, it's not showy and it's all in in what he doesn't say 
and he like you said he just kind of lets uh rodriguez say what he has to say but eventually they have the same fate there's no mm -hmm. way around it i mean kichijiro is a kind of counterpoint to them because they find they still have the moral discipline mm -hmm. of I, i guess they can't let themselves go entirely mm. whereas kichijiro when when his faith is gone he loses everything he he just takes to drinking mm -hmm. i i love the description of how he says he can smell the fires that burn his family mm. just just following him everywhere and he says to the priest when when you arrived the the fire seemed less bright in my dreams right and it's it's kind of like how the church and confession especially played an early role uh, kind of taking the place of psychotherapy in the idea that you could confess things get out your secrets get out all the things that are troubling all the demons inside you metaphorical demons of course mm -hmm. get that out of your system mm -hmm. so that you can continue on with the rest of your life and not be haunted by your past mm. kichijiro is that character he he doesn't have the behavior the i don't know what you call it the psychology i suppose he doesn't have the right way of dealing with the trauma that he's faced and so he reverts to this behavior that that's essentially self-serving and weak and well, well we call it weak but you know he'll save himself before others in a way he's kind of the smart yeah. one uh but he doesn't know. have the moral fortitude and no. you could call him he's not i wouldn't call him smart i call him the best survivor he's a survivor yeah yeah but he's not smart because he's tortured by his own decisions Exactly. Yeah, and he's yeah. constantly throughout the film he leaves and comes back and it's always with that he needs to mm -hmm. confess because he's deeply troubled and it's a heavy burden on him. Yeah, uh, and there's that sense of kind of pain the pain of torture, the pain of the crucifixions and the the brutality and all this stuff. Yeah. How it compares to the pain of not being secure with oneself. Mm. They're both forms of torture. And psychological mm. torture can be worse in some respects, even though it, it sounds wrong to say it, because obviously we would think physical violence is worse. But you can you can get yourself into some dark places in your mind and torture yourself. Yeah. And Kichijiro does that. He, when they yeah. find him, he's he's a wreck. He's yeah. He's just filthy, and yeah. He's been drinking himself to death, and and there's that sense of forgetting about. Paraiso and their idea of heaven and their idea of hell it's Kichijiro is in a form of hell absolutely and, and self-imposed yeah and I think a lot of I completely agree with that sometimes psychological that's what drives people to kill themselves and mm -hmm. it's what drives I think uh what has been it's known that you know people that cut themselves do it because of the psychological hell they're going through they'd rather feel physical pain so it'll liberate them from their thoughts yeah. so it's it, kind of like when yeah When you do have something that hurts, right? Uh, let's say you've got a toothache or something, and you you kind of pinch yourself just to take the pain away from that. You, so your mind focuses on the pain exactly. when you're pinching yourself. Exactly. Like that. It's it's the same thing. So the pain is so great that you know that cutting is is a little bit better. So I completely agree with that. And he is the most tortured. I mean, I would say him and uh, Rodriguez are on that same yeah. tortured. Status. Rodriguez starts torturing himself mainly because he can't be martyred. There's a quote kind of around the time he's going mad in in his cell i know it kind of builds up but there's a quote where he says ludicrous you're so ludicrous and he i don't know 
I don't know if he's talking to himself or to God at that point. He's probably um, talking to both at that yeah. point. Yeah. But he says he's not going to answer. He's not. And it comes into that theme of silence. And and he, in the book, there's a, a few bits where they refer to the silence being mm. so overwhelming for him after the prisoners are killed that he just realizes that the world's going on as if nothing had happened. Mm. They're buried and they're gone, and only the people that saw it well, right. are affected by it. Otherwise, it's just silent. There's, the world is going on as, as before. And that, that sense that, but, you know, it's never going to happen. The heavens aren't ever going to break open and God's not going to come down and, and rescue anyone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're, for whether religion is real or fake, we're down here by ourselves. Mm. And, and I think yeah. it's, I think the film also kind of in its visual and it, there's a lot of silence in the film, like literal silence. There's a lot of uh, scenes where there's not a lot of dialogue and it kind of takes yeah. its time. It kind of really sets a mood, which is really great. And I think that's why it feels very uh, meditative almost mm -hmm. and contemplative. It's just there's a lot of gaps in between dialogue and it kind of really takes its time uh, to kind of immerse you in that silence i love the very beginning of the film where you hear all the crickets and it's just a black screen and you're hearing the the rise of the sound and then it, it peaks and then it's just silence mm. you know i love that opening it kind of just launches you into that sort of realm so in the period where he's wandering in the wilderness again which is mm. kind of his own self-imposed reenacting of of Christ in some way he mm. you know he gets to go to village and it's been destroyed and he goes off wandering and he that's one of the most meditative parts of the film where you get to get a sense of what he's thinking there's a lot of voiceover because he's by himself mm -hmm. and he's asking he's kind of talking to God praying as it were uh and he says, I expected your silence, but the weight of it is terrible. And in the, the screenplay, it says, God, lend me the strength to be worthy of this trial and remain faithful to Jesus. Which is kind of throwaway dialogue, I think. Mm -hmm. And in the film, they change that to, the weight of your silence is terrible. I pray, but I'm lost. Or am I just praying to nothing? Nothing, because you're not there. Mm. So that, I think, can show you the importance of rewriting even, mm. you know, seemingly non-essential dialogue because the, the key to it was there, the, the idea, I expected your silence, but the weight of it is terrible, is in both. Mm. But that addition where he really questions it, mm. that's, that's a sign of good rewriting, I think. Yeah, no, that's great. I think, you know, once uh, you're a few drafts in, you've sort of taken out the fat, you've you kind of see what's working, what's not working. And mm -hmm. that's a great thing once you get to that point of rewrites is that it becomes really easy to see what doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what sort of um, whenever I write and it's a beginning drafts, it, it can get a little confusing as to the direction. I mean, you can have a vague direction, but once you're there and you're at the very end and you know the story and you know the themes and you know what the scene is supposed to be about, that's that's the most important part. Like, what are you trying to say with these words? Like, what are, what's the intention? And once that's clear, it becomes very easy to take out the fat, for sure. I think people might not be so aware that 
this screenplay is the result of so many rewrites and that there's actually very little stereotypical priest dialogue. And I think every line has basically been selected and has survived all these rounds of cuts, so it has to be there by the end. Right, right. Um, even things that seem like that sometimes you get the sense that you're writing a placeholder. Well, what would this kind of character say at this moment in the mm. script? And here, there's a sense that they've got rid of most of those placeholder lines of, oh, God be with you and this kind of thing. And it's it's all kind of stripped down to the, the really key sentences. Right. Towards the end, there's another reoccurrence of the motif of silence. And mm. it's it's when Rodriguez is, is asking... He, he has a moment of prayer when Kichichiro is asking for that extra confession, mm. even though he's no longer a priest. And he, that's when he finally confronts Christ because he's, he's asking himself, can he be a priest again? Can he administer mm. the confession? Right. And right. Does he even still believe? And he, he asks, he says, Lord, I fought against your silence. I suffer. And Jesus replies to him, I suffered beside you. I was never silent. Mm. And that line in the film, I don't know if it really gets to the depth of what they're trying to say. It's one of the few lines where I think they missed an opportunity, and I'll, I'll compare it to what, he's, what Endo wrote in the book. So Rodriguez says, But you told Judas to go away. What thou dost do quickly. What happened to Judas? And Christ replies, I did not say that. Just as I told you to step on the plaque, so I told Judas to do what he was going to do. But Judas was in anguish, just as you are. Mm. I really wish they'd added that back in to the film. Mm. Because I think it explains what Scorsese believed, the, the idea that Rodriguez had taken that role of denying Christ and, mm. and then his whole world had collapsed around him. But it explains why we do what we do. Mm. It's out of anguish. It's out of desperation. It's out of when you do terrible things. It's it's kind of out of that. It's out of yeah. not knowing another way out. It's not having right. a response. And then there's that, I suppose, that kind of Christian undertone behind it is even when you're doing that, even when you're in anguish, Christ is somehow suffering with you. That's not a concept that I suppose I have or most people have unless they... I think people that have that sense of a present Christ with them have that sense so. Mm. real Christians. They have that sense that Christ is with them mm -hmm. at all moments of their life and mm. suffers with them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I find that a lot in a lot of the people that are very religious Christian mm. that I know, which is it's a very living, breathing thing to them. Like Christ is wherever you are. And, it, and it's, it's um, I don't know how they see that visually or or spiritually, but I kind of, I mean, I'm not a religious person, but to me, I feel the Christ is a symbol and it's within. It's it's something that maybe those are all pointers when Christ says, I was there in your suffering. That's because you are Christ. We all are Christ. Mm -hmm. We all have that within ourselves. And the silence is because we're looking outside. He's literally looking for answers and supernatural kind of right. answers. Yeah. And, and that's not what for it the is. the silence to be broken by a voice is... It's supernatural. Like it's it's a miracle, essentially, right. that he's looking for. Yeah. These external yeah. things to break that silence. But in reality, the silence is only there because he's not looking so deeply within. 
even though he he's under the illusion that he is. So I think that that's kind of how I see it. And, and another thing about going back to Judas and, and how one of the things that Christ said that has always stuck with me, even after all these years, is when he said he was on the cross and he said, forgive them for they do not know what they for what they do. And that to me is another pointer to a, a sort of wisdom that I think I don't know. I, I kind of agree with it. You know, even when someone is doing something bad and they know they're doing something bad, they are still not conscious enough to do the right thing. So is it their fault? I mean, it is from one perspective, but if they would have been conscious enough to do the right thing, they would have done the right thing. But then, you know yeah. what I mean? Like there's I, this... I think what we're getting to here is actually what... It's, it's one of the few things I think that Christianity taught that is now mm. missing from our culture, mm. and that's forgiveness. Mm. And mm-hmm. it's the idea that what's happened is, because we've removed religion pretty much from our, our structures, right. we then see it as the law is the, the ultimate decider, or the approval of society is the ultimate decider. Right. And what really happens is, Everyone makes mistakes, and no one is perfect. And what Christianity offered was a route to forgiveness, to overcoming the mistakes that you've made. Mm -hmm. And I fear that we might not have enough of that in our culture anymore. Mm -hmm. The idea of there's too many knee-jerk reactions to things. That person's bad. I want them to go away. I never Mm -hmm. want them to exist. And what Christianity had offered was that redemption story of, of falling, sinning, going to the worst place, and then rising back up again. Mm. That's not something that society really offers because it doesn't have a framework for it. We don't have mm. a framework for, well, you made a mistake, and you know it's, it's more like you did something bad, you need to be punished. And, right. th- and there's no limit to that punishment. It just needs to be because you did something bad. And it's very amplified mm-hmm. in today's whole culture, yeah. today's climate, it's, it's apparent in politics, in the entertainment industry, it, across the board, you know, you have someone making one mistake and that is amplified and mm-hmm. they're crucified, it, it, you know, not literally, obviously, but you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's that, that reaction that you're talking about. And it's so true. There's very mm-hmm. little yeah. time put to understanding the motives or understanding why it happened. It's more about accusing. It's about shaming. Like we're living in a society that's all about shaming, even though it pretends that it's not. Yeah. And yeah. and the solution to that is to have a redemption, to have mm-hmm. a chance to to acknowledge mistakes, to grow again, try again, and then try and be the best person. Yeah. And that's kind of at the heart of Christianity. And it's one of the things that really is ignored. Yeah, because Christianity has got boiled down to what it is now, and it's it's very ugly what mm-hmm. what it is, and I think really understanding morality and ethics it's it's a hard job. There are lots of things that we can learn from this as we move into a post-religious society, but having some sort of redemption story seems to be necessary, and I suppose it's it's evident even in the time of of 
these characters, mm. the idea that if they've apostatized once, that's it. Their life is over. They can never be priests again. They can never. Yeah. That yeah. redemption is not offered to them either. Right. right. The Japanese offer a, a form of it, though. Mm. They offer an, a different life. If people will give up Christianity, then they can join their society. Mm. So they are offering a redemption story. Mm. Funnily enough, when the church is not offering it to the priests mm. and is expecting them to go out and become martyrs. And so you do get the sense of why what Rodriguez does, what Ferreira does, what Kichijiro does isn't the worst thing in the world. And why you call them smart. Well, it's the, you know, the smart thing, the dumb thing is to, to let yourself die over it. Because the the reality of life is that you have redemption in some way you have a way to come back and and of try course. again of course yeah i mean no matter where you are in whatever situation the fact that you're still alive there's always mm -hmm. an opportunity for for anything really yeah and i think people forget that one of the things i thought about rodriguez was maybe his his mistake was was arrogance in the sense that he put himself above everyone else and and that's not how it works and you can't put yeah. yourself above god you can't demand god does something for you mm. that was his mistake but then you also realize all of life is suffering mm. there's always going to be suffering in the world so what he does isn't really the worst thing because he yeah. ended some suffering yeah i mean he had the, the the good intention yeah and that's something that was very evidence throughout the film and unfortunately he drank too much of the kool-aid in a way yeah. like he was just very passionate about it and like i said it's something that's admirable but it's not smart mm -hmm. he, he just kind of didn't question it whatsoever he went full in yeah and uh, i think that that's also the problem with religion nowadays is that people go completely mm -hmm. dive in and they begin to be blinded by everything around them or everything's kind of seen through a weird lens yeah yeah which is the doctrine which is mm -hmm. the this is sin this is good this mm -hmm. is sin this is okay this is the right way to live this yeah. is the wrong way don't do that don't do do this you know that you can't boil life down t to that right and i know that religion by necessity requires some of that but it's also with the understanding that it has all these other things mm-hmm the, the redemption and the idea that Christ suffers with them. Mm -hmm. that, so Rodriguez is, what he does is to try and end that anguish because he can't, he can't go on. If, he, if he's in this anguish forever, he's mm. stuck. So he has to do something. And then there's that sense that it was mm. Christ, the, the voice of Christ within him that, that was there and said, Essentially, that's what he wanted to do, was to end that anguish for, for Rodriguez in the way he ended it for Judas. Mm. He at least made it the pain go away. Mm. And, so, yeah, it's a and, very deep yeah. part of the story. And now that you mentioned it, uh, the voice of Christ only appeared at first when he denounced God. Yeah. That's the moment that we hear Christ as the audience. Yeah, that's, that's the very moment important. the silence yeah. is broken. Mm-hmm. Which is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's because he's no longer trying to insist 
he on, stopped resisting. On get, yeah, he stopped he, resisting, and he's not demanding yeah. anything of Christ and or God mm. as he was before when he's demanding an answer from the silence all mm. the way through. He will only get that answer once he's lived, once he's done the things that he's going to do. Mm. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't even pick up on that until we started having this conversation. Yeah. But that's true. Like the minute he stopped resisting is the moment he heard the silence was broken at that point. So you could say the entire journey was essentially these two men, what started off as two men, resisting something that was out of their control. Yeah. Also, it's it's also they were blinded by the fact that they were outnumbered and even though if their their cause was what they felt just, they were still endangering people. Mm-hmm. At at the end of the gospel of Matthew, there's this this last speech called the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. And that is the one that says you should go out and spread the faith to the people of all the nations. Mm. And the way it ends is with Christ saying, remember, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. And that's what's inspired these priests. That mm. that message, oh, I need to go out and mm. sh- because religion is important to me, so I need to share it with the right. world. Right. But what they forget they they conveniently look look away from is the importance of context mm, mm. does it make sense in the context of there is this government in control that is that is torturing and harming all the the people that believe in christianity and putting people into these horrible horrible decisions and causing so much suffering there is a context there you can spread the spread this word and let's say you have to decide the right elements of it which to spread as well and it's not it's not the same as going around telling people to live like you and accept your customs and right and to to do the things that you say are good and to never do the things that you say are sin or you're never going to have dialogue with that culture right and they're going to reject you right and you do, and that little message at the end of just remembering that Christ is is with you maybe it's meant to mean something a bit more along the lines of deal with your own stuff first as well mm. you know and that's until Rodriguez has really dealt with his own relationship with Christ what what is he doing out there trying to tell everyone else how to live right. and trying to be the hero of the Christian story in Japan and what good is it going to do to all these villagers who have no money these peasants yeah. You know, is it going to change their situation? It gives them a bit of hope, right? It gives them hope, yeah. yeah. But it's like you said, it's about context and it's yeah. about just using logical common sense. I think there has to be a balance of both. I think that's when your conviction is more powerful is when you're not just driven by a certain structure or a mental mm-hmm. identity, but you're rather, you're aware of what the situation is and you're aware of what your convictions are. And it's like a a marriage of the two like how do we dance together yeah more, more i think more peaceful today we've we've kind of split things off into different branches so spirituality is this kind of mm-hmm. inquisitive uh open-minded way of of being yeah and kind of its opposite is ideology mm-hmm. and doctrine mm-hmm. and religion maybe for people in the past it made sense to have a mix of both of those Mm. Uh, but the ideology is what's preventing the real dialogue mm-hmm. with the spiritual. 
Yeah. And the yeah. spiritual is the part that tells you this is metaphorical. It's it's about guidance. It's about figuring out what's mm -hmm. right and wrong mm -hmm. during the course of a lifetime, not opening a page of a book and expecting the answer to be there. Yeah, absolutely. And that literalness, it's present in ideologies. It's present in if if someone comes along and tells you they've got a great political ideology, then that's probably something to be wary of as well because it's just yeah. like a religion but it doesn't even have the spiritual element to it so that's so true because what is it offering right it, it, it's it's very much um prevalent in every aspect you have not just politicians there's another form of religion you have even baseball or basketball mm -hmm. there's another form of religion this is my team so yeah. you're that team so now we're against each other especially yeah. soccer there's people that have been murdered over soccer games yeah. uh, but so really we should be having a dialogue over well who are the best players and what would make the ideal dream team or something like that if you love sport right not yeah. not hating someone just because they wear a different colored shirt to you exactly <laughs> we're conditioned to to seek out differences and for us to well this is what i believe and this is what i am and it, if you're different yeah. from that then we can't coexist there's that mm -hmm. fundamental human nature in, instilled in every aspect of, of life, I think, still. And I think it's part of what needs to be um, worked on. My favorite kind of politicians are those who are pragmatic and ethical. So they, they really think about what the implication of each individual law might be right. or policy, as opposed to politicians that have a strong ideology and will vote against the interests of people just in the name of keeping things either the way they are or because their ideology is all about progress and they want progress above everything else no matter who it harms both of those things are dangerous and and pragmatic usually they're kind of known as the center in politics because they're the ones who are willing to talk to both sides and mm -hmm. and not pick a side and stick to it mm -hmm. and um you know religion often comes across that way as look we've got the one truth and that's what happens mm. here in in silence is that one truth is is clashing with another truth which is the japanese way of life yeah and they can't find that middle ground yeah there are a lot of characters that inhabit the middle ground though people are complicated they're not one thing or the other right i think ferrera's in the middle ground he's not he's not fully christian he's not fully japanese I think Kichijiro is the same. He's not fully Christian. He's not fully Japanese. Right. I think the interpreter yeah. can kind of fall into... I, he seemed to be very neutral. I think the interpreter is a little bit more on the Japanese side than right. others. He's he's still kind of a, a spokesperson for Inoue. Um, yeah, he is. But, but, but the way he just approached Rodriguez and, and sort of... I mean, there were moments of tension, but I think ultimately he saw it as... He wasn't passionate about Buddhism. He wasn't yeah. passionate about getting on. No, he's practical Christians. about it. He's yeah. exactly. He's very practical. Like, let's be efficient. Let's just get to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've barely talked about the the metaphor of the swamp of Japan, but that comes up a lot when yeah. characters are specifically talking about this. They refer to the swamp of Japan. Mm -hmm. Christianity is a seed that will not grow here, right. and it's that idea of once you've got this huge tradition going back for so long. You can't just come in and impose something else on top of it. All right. And that's what 
the most ideological the priests were trying to do instead of tending to the suffering of the individual um, mm. believers in their communities. Mm. Christianity had, and there are precedents for this in other places as well, especially Mexico, for example, but Christianity had kind of come along as the the vanguard of the, the conquering. So it's it's ensuring that the colonial power will maintain control. Part of that is to bring about a whole revolution in the way of life of the indigenous people. Right. I mean, the, uh, these are tools that are used as weapons by by those in power. And hmm. even even today, yeah. they are still used as that. I mean, and the I, Japanese saw this coming, and that's right. why they are so... They were threatened so, by it, yeah. So brutal with the Christians. Yeah. I mean, it was a very savage time. And you could say that it's gotten better, but I think we're still... There's still remnants of that There's you know, a, religious conflict between different ideologies. Yeah, it's 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 kind of magnified. I think there's a lot more cross-cultural communication than there's ever been. Of course, and there's yeah. also, but all of the differences are being magnified big yeah. time, even within countries that have kind of stable communities mm -hmm. and they're not facing any wars or natural disasters or anything. And still, politics seems to be this this painful <laughs> area. And religion seems to be a painful thing to talk yeah, about. Yeah, so, absolutely. So this is, yeah. is just being magnified as time goes on. And silence as a story is one that just tells you to step back for a second and reflect and figure out what's really important to you, though, and how do you want to live your life. Absolutely. And don't watch the flashing lights and the right. you know the big screens for a second. Just think about right. think about what's important. Yeah, and and that was uh, I think that's the best quality that this film has is that potential to bring people together and have this discussion, like me and you are having. I mean, we kind of are on the same side when it comes to our opinion about this. But when me and my brother saw the film, you know, he's very religious and I'm not, but yet we had a very civilized conversation. Like we never lost, we never got super heated or passionate. It was just a very we were just contemplating sort of the whole ideology thing and sort of contemplating sort of our own individual perspective and being respectful of one another's. And I think that, that, that that's what the tone of the film is, which is yeah. what makes it a really great film. I, th I think it really makes you notice in a big way that no one knows everything. Exactly. So it's important yeah. to be able to talk freely yeah. about what you feel. Mm -hmm. and hope that the other person has something that they can share that will mm -hmm. help you build up yeah. your understanding of what you think life is about. Right. So it's yeah. it's such an incredible film for that reason. It's a great film. It, and the book yeah. as well, I think if anyone hasn't read it, they need to. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. pretty much just like the film, but it kind of gives you a more in-depth sort of a journey on it. It's, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. This will be, like you said at the beginning, Soon people will recognize that this film was really, really important. Mm -hmm. And it went under a lot of radars. It did, yeah. I'm sure there are people who we could go out into the street right now and ask, ask around. And maybe there's probably a lot of people that haven't even heard of it. In terms of history of cinema, this is going to be seen as a high point in uh, Scorsese's career. I think so too. And I think it's the most significant film to touch on the topic of religion that I've ever seen. 
but just from a storytelling standpoint and just visually, I think it's probably his best work up to date. I think every film he's worked on has led up to this. I mean, this is a watching the film. I've watched it three times now. It's like it's like a masterstroke. Everything's so intentional. The 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 pacing, the visual, the way he adapted the book and was so faithful to it and its mm-hmm. story. It's just great. It was worth the wait. It was worth however many rewrites they went through in all yeah. of those years. I've seen a picture of uh, the front cover of one of the scripts, and it just mm. lists all of the drafts oh, on really? the, front, uh, on the oh. front cover, and they they were color coded by by the way of by keeping track of them was right. by, through colors. And there's like a dozen names on there, and it's just from like a couple of years. And we know that this goes all the way back and through the 2000s yeah. into the 90s. That they were they were writing and rewriting and trying to figure out how to break this story. I don't think it's worth necessarily breaking down the story itself into pieces because it is such a faithful adaptation of the book. If you want to understand how the story works, you read the book. Yeah, and I think it might have been the opposite thing where probably the first few drafts were so different from the book that the more they wrote, yeah. they probably realized, you know, the closer we are to the book, the better the film is going to be. Because actually yeah. there was another film based on the book in the 70s. And, and that one wasn't very faithful from... I, ha- I haven't seen it, but... It was Japanese, right? Um, I believe so. And I, I read a little bit about it and it, it's not like the book at all. And I believe the author was not very happy with that version either. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I think we will leave our discussion on silence here. Sure. Think about Sounds what good. film we're going to discuss next time. And uh, yeah. yeah, this was a really great conversation. I think, I think this is really what I've been aiming for with the podcast is to explore not just how screenplays are written, but what they mean to us. Mm. And having these long-form conversations, I think you can really get into an understanding of the theme of something and the right. the meaning of a story in a way that couldn't be done if we just spoke for 10 to 20 minutes about it. Yeah. And I think we would have just brushed over very quickly and ended up with an understanding of the film that, like I said, I, I think a lot of people have this perception. It's just this yeah. uh, film about faith and you'd have to be a Christian to understand it or anything like that. I think, yeah, we've been raised in Christian environments, uh, but we're not practicing religious people, and yet we right. can engage very deeply with um, yeah. with the topics, and I think they are universal. So Exactly, because they kind of ask you what, pretty much the essential question, well, what are you about? Yeah, what is life about, yeah. And I think that's what it all points to when you come out of this film. It was well, a pleasure, well, Will. Yeah, it was a pleasure. What quote should, should we leave it with? Ooh, Here's a good one. Yeah. This refers to the... Uh, it's it's what Rodriguez says when they have just watched Ichizo and Mokichi die. Mm. And he says, It took Mokichi four days to die. At the end, he sang a hymn, so they say. His voice was the only sound. The people of the village who were gathered on the beach were always silent. Thank you all for listening. If you've made it this far, then I hope you've had a good experience with this episode. 
Please do recommend us to any of your friends that you think would be interested, as the more listeners we have, the easier it will be for us to keep doing this. Do check out the 21strrewrite.com, that's spelled with a two and a one, the 21strrewrite.com, and subscribe to us using the RSS feed in your favorite podcast app. Thank you.